Amen. You may be seated. I invite each of you uh, to turn with me now in God's Word to the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. Our text today is Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Revelation 13 and verses 11 through 18. Uh, We have been in a study of the book of Revelation over the past several months together, working our way consecutively uh, through the teaching of this book. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, we saw a picture of the cosmic warfare that takes place between the dragon, who is Satan, and the child born of the woman, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, though Satan has battled against Christ, seeking to stop him in his redemptive work, and he battles against the church, who are redeemed by Christ, nonetheless, the Lord Jesus will have the final victory. Uh, Satan's warfare has an ending point, and Jesus Christ will triumph. But then last week, uh, we began to look at Revelation 13. And in last week's sermon, we looked at the first of two different beasts that are described in Revelation 13. And these are, as it were, Satan's henchmen in doing his work. Uh, The first of those beasts was the beast who is rising out of the sea. And we saw last week that this is rightly interpreted as referring to kind of anti-Christian government and authority throughout the world that has set themselves against the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw the danger of offering ultimate allegiance to any state or government which demands it. But rather, our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord himself. Well, today we're going to consider the second beast that arises as one of Satan's henchmen in this world. And this is going to be the beast out of the earth. The beast out of the earth. And so we'll hear from God's word now, Revelation 13. And verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. 
Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This ends this reading in God's uh, holy word. Let's now seek the Lord's face again in prayer. Lord, our uh, God uh, in heaven, we uh, acknowledge uh, with thanksgiving that Revelation 13 is part of inspired scripture which is given unto your people uh, for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the people of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And Lord, we long to be taught today, warned today, encouraged today out of this portion of your word. O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, come and be your teacher, that we might understand the good things that you have laid up for us here, and that we might be those who not only hear, but pay careful attention to and heed the teachings of your Holy Scripture. These things we pray now, uh, in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Well, does truth matter? Well, I think the answer of Scripture is unequivocally yes. It does. We are instructed in Scripture uh, uh, to hold fast to that truth that has been uh, once delivered, the faith that has been once delivered unto uh, the saints. Uh, We are to abide by that truth that accords with godliness. We are to be those who are lovers of the truth. And that is such a countercultural claim to make but it is such an important claim on the basis of God's word to make. And I trust today that we will see out of this second beast in Revelation chapter 13, the importance of holding fast to the truth. We're going to jump right into the teaching of this passage. Uh, The outline that we're going to use this week is actually identical to the outline that we used in looking at the first beast, the beast out of the sea last week. We're going to first of all consider the beast's identity, and then secondly, the beast's features, and then lastly, the beast's limits. The beast's identity, the beast's features, and the beast's limits. As this beast, the beast out of the earth, is set, as it were, side by side as one of the dragon's two henchmen in doing his work in this world. Uh, set side by side with the beast that is out of the sea. So let's jump right into this. First of all, I want us to consider out of our passage today, the beast's identity. Well, unlike that beast out of the sea, which you may recall from last week, was rather fearsome and grotesque in its appearance. Uh, The beast out of the earth appears rather harmless and docile by comparison. Uh, The only thing that we are told about its appearance is found in verse 11 that this beast rising out of the earth has two horns like a lamb. How cute. (laughs) Children, I mean, you think about it. What is a lamb like, right? Well, lambs we often think of as cute, soft and cuddly, maybe skipping across meadows, uh, rather harmless. Most of us would not be afraid to meet a lamb out in its pasture. Maybe some of you children would even like a little lamb as a pet. So you look at this beast and you say, 
how harmless this is. This beast appears harmless. And yet, as soon as we're told about the two horns that it has like a lamb, then we are told that it speaks with the voice of a dragon. It speaks like a dragon. Well, we know who that dragon is. It is none other than Satan himself. And so, though appearing harmless, this, this lamb actually speaks words that are vicious and deceptive and deadly. And as we see in our passage, with the words of this beast, he persuades people to worship the first beast, who himself is doing the will of Satan. Uh, this beast out of the earth is described in verse 14 as one who deceives those who dwell on the earth. This beast spreads lies so that people are blinded to the truth of God and the glory of Christ, but instead offer their worship to idols. That's the description of this beast. And so we ask now, what is it that this beast symbolizes? You remember, Revelation is a book that is full of symbols. And so what does this beast symbolize? And at this point, virtually all commentators agree that this beast out of the earth symbolizes false religion and false ideologies which deny the truth of God and lead people to believe lies. False religion, false ideologies which deny the truth of God and lead people to believe lies. And in this, and in, in this work... The beast acts indeed as the agent of the dragon. Do you remember what the scriptures say about Satan? One of the primary things that we're told about Satan is that he is a liar and the father of lies. He lied to Adam and Eve in the garden and he continues to deceive people today. He's an impersonator, a master of disguises. He can transform himself, the scriptures say, into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And at Satan's bidding, false apostles even can disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and as servants of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. The Lord Jesus warned us against such false prophets who do Satan's bidding. Matthew 7.15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And indeed, that is clearly what this beast out of the earth is. Later, this beast is going to be described as, quote, the false prophet. Revelation 16, verse 13. Revelation 19, verse 20. Revelation 20, and verse 10. And it's the same figure that is being spoken of. This beast is a beast who deceives by false teaching. Now, just like that first beast that we saw last week, which represented all anti-Christian government from the first coming of Christ unto Christ's second coming, this beast represents all false religion and philosophy throughout this same entire church age. 
In other words, this beast was one that was active in the first century when John was writing this, these words to his hearers. He is a beast who is active today in the 21st century. And it's a beast who will be active until he is finally overthrown and judged at Christ's appearing. Now, uh, to be sure... Um, false prophecy will be a characteristic of that man of lawlessness, that final Antichrist, who is going to appear uh, just before Christ's second coming, who will lead many astray. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9 describes the man of lawlessness uh, in strikingly similar language to this uh, false prophet. It says that the coming of the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay? And so, uh, uh, that final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is going to be one particularly strong manifestation of this beast out of the earth. But nonetheless, this passage in Revelation 13 isn't speaking only of that final Antichrist, but rather the beast represents all false teachers, all deceivers in their various manifestations uh, throughout this age. Well, how does this beast, this purveyor of false religion and false ideology, looking harmless and yet containing deadly words, how does this beast manifest itself in this world? Well, the ways are almost too many for us to list. In fact, I think they probably are in the course of today's sermon. But let me just mention several of the ways in which this beast has manifested himself. Uh, in the first century, uh, through many of the magic arts and occultism that was common in the first century, through the emperor worship, that those magic arts served uh, in, the, uh, in uh, the Roman Empire. It uh, is present as well in the Jewish denial of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Well, in the early church, this beast appeared in many forms, in heresies like Arianism and Gnosticism and Nestorianism. Each one of these heresies, either denying the Trinity, the being of God himself, or compromising on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these are false teachings of Satan. Uh, as uh, the years moved on, uh, Roman Catholicism uh, as well, which had abuses, which led finally to the Reformation, and whose false teaching was then enshrined in the Council of Trent, denying the unique authority of the Bible and practicing idolatry in its worship, introducing mediators other than the Lord Jesus Christ, denying the crucial doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And indeed, the Reformers often recognized in the Roman Catholic Church of their day, marks of the second beast. But it has made many other appearances as well. Various sects 
throughout history. Religious sects like the Shakers or the Quakers or modern-day cults like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. But then there are world religions that have swept up millions upon millions upon millions in their false teaching as well. World religions such as Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism or certainly in our day, Islam, which is such a purveyor of lies and denies the truth regarding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, blinding many in those false systems of belief. Friends, it's not just false religion, but it's also different ideologies which have risen in human society. We think of the age of the Enlightenment several centuries ago, and people began to cast off the so-called shackles of biblical revelation and submitted everything, instead of to God's revelation, submitted everything to the God of human reason. That, dear friends, was a mark of this beast out of the earth. Or in this last century, there have been many ideologies which have risen. Fascism and Nazism is a form of that. Or communism as well, each in their own way, elevating the state to a certain position of religious worship and of absolute devotion. These are false ideologies. But in our own day, in which we live in the 21st century West, one of the chief ideologies which this beast out of the earth manifests itself is in the secularism or humanism of our own day. We are told, are we not, that uh, society has now evolved beyond primitive myths and superstitions. That we are to accept a new morality, a new way of, li- of living, freed from the shackles of religion. Uh, one of the uh, main um, teachings of secularism today is, is that of materialism. That there is no soul and that there is no spirit world. That all that there is is a material universe. That you and I are only physical bodies and that we have appeared in this world merely through physical forces in a process of evolution. And that science, that is, science, uh, instead of exploring the beauties of God's creation as God intended science wonderfully to be, but instead we are told that science, divorced from any understanding of God, is now able to explain everything that there is. And since there is no God and only man exists, all morality is to be determined by man. That it is relative to different cultures and it is ever-evolving. Morality is ever-evolving as mankind becomes more enlightened. The only real moral category that we are given today is that we should not do anything to hurt somebody else. But even that isn't consistently kept, but frequently broken. And since there is no God, the good life, we are told, no longer is to be thought of as glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But rather, the good life is defined in terms of money 
or intelligence or appearance or pleasure. Friends, that is the ideology of the day and age in which we live in the 21st century uh, West. Isn't it so interesting? In our society, there's still uh, extraordinarily large numbers of people, something like 85 or 90 percent, that still say they believe in God. But nonetheless, while saying that with their lips, they have adopted this kind of secular, humanistic thinking in their minds. And there are even various forms of Christianity that have compromised with culture and are spreading the dominant ideology of our day, sort of baptized with semi-Christian language. Uh, There are churches, uh, many of them, with rainbows out in front of them. And it's it's a sign even that they have adopted the mindset and the thinking of the age in which we live. Friends, this kind of mindset, this kind of ideology is in the air that we breathe. You know, one of the things about our age is it seems that this ideology is no longer even argued for, but rather it's simply assumed to be true. You're assumed to be crazy if you haven't bought into all of this. It is spread through educational institutions. It is spread through mass media. It is spread especially through social media. That these ideas are, as it were, in the very air that we breathe. Friends, all of this that I have just mentioned, that we find in our own day and throughout history, friends, is the work of this beast. It is, this beast symbolizes Satan's work in spreading lies uh, throughout this current age. And so you and I should not be surprised when false teaching is spread. There is teaching that will appear good and appealing. It will look like a lamb, but we must realize that it is spreading lies indeed. That's the beast's identity. The beast's identity. Secondly, though, let's spend a little bit of time considering some of the beast's features. The beast's features. And I have three different features uh, that I want us to focus on. The first thing that we see about this second beast is that this beast promotes the worship of the first beast, which is anti-Christian government. You remember last week we saw that the beast out of the sea representing government set against Christ is that which often demands false worship. Now last week I was very clear. Civil government itself is not an evil thing. It's the creation of God. It has a legitimate function in service to God. It is good for Christians to be involved in government and to to help government fulfill its lawful functions. But nonetheless, what Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10 taught us is that government has the tendency to assume more and more and more authority to itself and to set up itself as the ultimate provider and redeemer of people and to demand a kind of worship and absolute allegiance from the people. Friends, we see it in all kinds of totalitarian states that have been set up throughout the course of human history. I mean, we just saw it in Russia this past week, did we not? 
Okay, any Russian citizen who dares protest Putin's power-hungry war are being uh, arrested and killed, not allowed to leave the country. Okay, and the parts that they claim to have annexed in Ukraine, soldiers are bringing ballot boxes in one hand and machine guns in the other and asking the people to vote. Friends, that is, that's a totalitarian state that is asking for ultimate allegiance. From its, uh, from its people. It's one of many different kinds of examples that can be given of a kind of worship which the state often demands. Now, what false philosophy does is it tends to provide a kind of ideological justification for the worship of the state. Uh, as it were, the second beast is kind of the propagandist for the first beast. And we find this in verse 12, right? It exercises, this second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Or again in verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. That is, as it were, to give life, to make this image appear real and something worthy to be worshipped so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Do you see, many false ideologies are in service to anti-Christian government. And friends, in this way, this false beast parodies in many ways, the work of the Holy Spirit. What's the job of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit opens up people's eyes to see the glory of Christ, who is the Redeemer, the only Redeemer of mankind. But what does this false prophet do? What does false ideology do? It seeks to seduce people to magnify the state and all of the anti-Christian institutions of this present age. And so the beast, this second beast, promotes the worship of the first one. Secondly, the second feature that we see is that the beast accomplishes impressive signs. The beast accomplishes impressive signs. Uh, This is verses 13 and 14. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay? And so what we have there um, is something that is true of false religion, that often it is bolstered by either magical acts or wonder-working kinds of abilities. And so in the first century... Uh, there were magicians. Uh, These magicians were often employed by um, provincial pagan temples that were really doing the service of Rome. And so these magicians would perform various tricks. And there's even records in the first century of of things like uh, fireball explosions and ventriloquism, things that are in line with Revelation 13 here. And such were used in these pagan, uh, in these pagan uh, temples. Okay, it promoted uh, idol worship, and we've seen the same thing actually throughout all of uh, throughout all of history. 
A false religion has often made claims of various miracles. Okay, you go through most of the uh, world religions, uh, and there are claims of uh, various miracles. Cults often uh, claim a certain miracles uh, that uh, that accomplished, and these. Uh, miracles, which in many ways are parodies of the true miracles which were accomplished by Jesus Christ, giving testimony to the truth and validity of his ministry, uh, these kinds of miracles uh, often give people a kind of sense of, of wonder or attraction to, uh, again, to false ideology. I want to suggest even that secularism in our own day has its own kind of of miracles that are promoted. It's the so-called kind of miracle of science and technology in our day. You know, the kind of attitude that, hey, we have the iPhone now. All the information that I could ever need in my pocket, why do I need God? Or look at what mankind has been able to accomplish. Look at what we've done in the fields of medicine, of architecture, of travel. How, how great is man? And indeed, you, you think of the developments that have been made. I mean, a, a, a person who's 90 years old, think of the things that you've, that you've experienced in the course of your lifetime, the kind of developments. But people sometimes look at that and they say, oh, it's the miracle of modern science. It's, it's, it's the miracle of technology. Look at all that we've been able to accomplish. And that's then put in service. If we have all of this, We don't need God. We don't need Christianity anymore. There's a certain kind of feeling of invincibility that goes along with it that bolsters the claims of secularism. But of course, to such claims, we want to ask, has it really made the world any better of a place? Is there any less warfare? Is there any less hatred? Is there any less family breakdown? Is there any less addiction? Most importantly, Have people had the guilt of their sin taken away? Are they reconciled to a holy God through the things that man has been able to accomplish? Those are the questions that we ought to ask to such claims. But you see, in the minds of many, they don't think of those things. They just say, what a brave new world, what a wonderful new world we're living in. Oh, it must be that we can leave religion behind. We don't need God in this present world. And I think that's an application here of this beast out of the earth and the miracles that he has been able uh, to, or that he, was been, that he has been allowed. And notice those words, too, in verse 14, that he's been allowed uh, to work uh, in the presence of that first beast. But then um, uh, the, the, third, the third point that I want us to see now uh, uh, is this. It is that this beast, that this same beast now, has, uh, that this same beast marks the people, the same beast marks the people, and he persecutes then uh, the people of God. This beast marks his people, and he persecutes uh, the people of God. Okay? And we see this now, actually, in... um, uh, beginning at verses 16, verses 16 and 17 here. Look with me at those verses. It says, 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Well, what is this talking about? Well, there have been many uh, fanciful interpretations of what this a mark of the beast really is. It's not referring to some kind of microchip that has been implanted uh, in the minds of, uh, of different people. Uh, rather, the best way to understand what's being spoken of is by its parallel in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. In Revelation 7 and verse 3, there we are told of another mark that was being placed on people. Uh, there we read, uh, excuse me, Revelation uh, yes, 7 and verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have, what, sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And there we said that that sealing is the same as the sealing that is talking to, talked about in the rest of Scripture. It's the idea that when we are Christians, that we have the Holy Spirit of God who marks us out as belonging to Him. See, in the first century, there was a mark that was put on someone that was a slave. It was to show who their owner was. And the idea is that if we are a Christian, we are owned by God. We are His servants. We belong to Him. He is going to care for us. And here it is saying that those who belong not to God, who have not been sealed by that Spirit on their foreheads, belong yet to the beast. And he marks them on their right hand or their forehead. I think potentially the right hand is referring to that realm of activity or industry. The forehead referring to the realm of thinking or thought life. And it's saying in all that people think or that they do, they are, as it were, under the control of uh, of this second beast, of false ideology. They are enslaved by it. Their great need is to be redeemed by it, or to be redeemed from it. Uh, They have this mark. And we read here that all who are not marked by this beast then are persecuted as a result. Verse 15, uh, um, those who do not worship the image of that first beast are to be slain. Or verse 17, All who did not have that mark, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its uh, name. Uh, It's pointing to a world in which when we do not adopt the primary, the false religions or the ideologies of our day, that the Christian church is going to be persecuted. And again, this is just a reality in the age in which we live. Uh, You look in many uh, countries controlled by an Islamic state. And for a person to become a Christian means that they will not be allowed to enter university, that they will not get a promotion at their job, just the opposite, that they can only get the lowest work that is available. In many cases, they will be disowned by their family for being a Christian if they do not, as it were, possess the false teaching that is the dominant ideology they are utterly excluded. And the same thing can be said uh, increasingly so 
in our secular West. Uh, if you own a, a business, or increasingly, if you are going to be an educational institution, and it's not quite here yet, but it's the next thing coming, that if you're going to be one of these things and not buy into the dominant ideology, especially surrounding the area of sexual ethics in our society today, then you are going to be, uh, 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 then there are going to be regulations, and there are going to be fines, and you are going to at times be shut down. And that's increasingly so in our day. And it trends, it's exactly what is being talked about here in Revelation uh, chapter 13. These are the beast's features in our day. The beast supports, promotes the worship of the first beast. Uh, this beast works uh, various uh, uh, signs. Uh, this beast as well marks out its own people and persecutes the people of God. But now thirdly, I want us to see, by way of encouragement, the beast's limits. Okay, this sounds awfully frightful so far. This beast that looks like a lamb, it's doing so much damage in the course of human history, spouting forth the lies of Satan. Is there any encouragement to be taken in the midst of this? And just as we saw last week, that there is encouragement, so there is encouragement with this beast as well. And you say, where do we find encouragement in this passage? Well, I say we actually find it in what's probably the, what you, you might say is the most interesting part of this passage. And it is in this matter that the number of this beast that people are marked by, we are told, is this number 666. What does this mean? Well, um, some in the history of the church have suggested uh, that there was an ancient numbering practice called uh, gentria um, that assigns numbers to certain letters. Uh, and with that numbering system, you can come out with an identity for who this false prophet is. Well, I don't think that's a good system to use. But people have come up with all sorts of names. Uh, the most famous is that of they've come up with Nero, uh, but it has to, you have to say Caesar Nero, and you have to translate it from like Hebrew into Greek, and then assign letters, and it's just I, 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 most the people even reading Revelation didn't know Hebrew. Uh, it, it, it I don't think it would have made any sense to them who it was. Uh, and actually, it's interesting using this numbering system. All different people have been able to come up with all different names. Some people have come up with Martin Luther. Uh, others have come up with Henry Kissinger. Uh, others, Ronald Reagan. Uh, others, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Others, Adolf Hitler. Uh, you just go down uh, the line. The beast, or th this false prophet has been identified by many as this number 666. Well, I think that is just entirely the wrong approach to take. As we've said many times, uh, this isn't some kind of, uh, we, we don't need some kind of uh, special uh, key like this to interpret Revelation, but rather we have found throughout the book of Revelation that there are numbers which are symbolic. And, and it's a pretty simple symbolism. And one of the numbers that we found time and again is that number seven, right? The Holy Spirit was described as the seven spirits of God. There were seven churches that were written to. There are seven seals and seven 
uh, uh, trumpets, and someday we're going to read of seven bowls. And what's that number seven represent? It's the number of perfection. It's the number of perfection. Well, what are we told here is the number of this beast, the number of all false teaching. It is one below perfection, repeated three times. It's six. It's six again. (laughs) Yet again, it is six. It is not able to reach God's perfection. And does that not make sense in the context when we read in verse 18, it is the number of a man. It's not God's number of perfection. It's the number of all that man in his own resources can ever accomplish. He can never reach what God gives to us. And so no matter how intelligent and how clever man is, no matter the systems of philosophy and of religion and of thought, no matter the human resources that we bring to tackle this world's problems, time and time and time again, it is all going to fall short. Calculate the number of the beast, he says. Pay attention to what its number is. It's six, six, six. What an important lesson uh, this is. History, uh, you know, one thing that we, we say, I've said this before, one thing that's commonly spouted by purveyors of false ideology in our day, they tell us, don't be on the wrong side of history. That is, there's a certain evolution to history. We're moving beyond Christianity. We are moving into these realms of new morality. Don't be the one who's found to be left behind. Well, dear friends, the book of Revelation tells us what the real path of history is. And it's saying all of man's own attempts to chart its own course are at the end of the day going to be found woefully short. And at the end of the day, history is going to say that the Lamb is going to triumph. And God's truth is going to prevail. And that, dear friends, is the right side of history. Well, let me close today by just giving a couple of words of application. This passage about this beast out of the earth, first of all, calls you and me to exercise great discernment in the world in which we live. We are called to exercise great discernment. See, that's actually the call at the beginning of verse 18. This calls for wisdom. In other words, do not be surprised that there are a variety of teachings that there are a variety of ideologies and that some of those appear very attractive at times. Do not be surprised when you see large numbers of people chasing after this way of thought, this way of morality, this way of living. Do not be surprised. There's a beast out of the earth who the Bible says is doing this kind of work. So what are you and I called to do? Are we called to chase after every fad of thought that comes our way? And the answer is no, but it is instead to exercise great discernment as we walk through this world. 
you know, if I were to hand you a giant briefcase, and that briefcase was full of counterfeit dollar bills, you would not be rich when you got that briefcase. They're all counterfeits. They're not worth anything. And friends, you and I need to have the discernment to recognize what are the counterfeits in the world in which we live. And how do we get that kind of discernment? Well, it's frequently been said, and rightly so, that the way that you recognize a counterfeit is by studying what the real thing is. And what's the real truth of the living God? It's found in the Bible. So what do we need to do, you and I need to do? We need to be men and women of the book, men and women of the Bible, men and women who study the Scriptures, who are grounded in the truth of God's Word, who recognize the truth. And when we recognize the truth, we can recognize error then as well. Those of you who are parents and you have children in the home, one of the most important tasks that you are being given as parents is to ground your children in the truth. Teach them the truth. Read the Bible to them. Talk about the things of uh, of Scripture. Help them to think about the world in which they live in, the messages that they hear, the things that they see or read on social media, the, the, the things that they talk about it with them, that they might be grounded in the truth. Guard the things that they're being exposed to, the kinds of teaching that they're hearing. Be aware of what they're listening to or reading or seeing on their, on their phones or on their computer screens. Friends, we need to be those who ground our children in the truth and help them to have discernment in the midst of this of this present age oh friends there is a call here for great discernment but a second application is this and that is that you and i need to be those who cling to the truth without compromise and who find our security in the lord jesus christ Cling to the truth without any compromise to this present culture, without any compromise to false religion. When, the false be, when this false prophet speaks, shut out that voice. Answer it with the words of Scripture. And do not compromise, but be found faithful to the truth. And why is it that we dare not compromise? Because the truth of Holy Scripture is the truth concerning our Lord Jesus Christ who has loved us and who has redeemed us by his own precious blood. When we talk about the truth, we're not talking simply about bare propositions, about some distant, detached kind of thing. But why do you and I love the truth? Because we we love the truth because that truth tells us about our blessed Savior who we love with all of our hearts because he has so loved us. I love my Bible because it is my loving God's word to me. And it tells me about the one who came to bear my sin and who rose from the dead on the third day and has secured my everlasting salvation. When we come to the table this morning, that's what we're coming to remember. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we love truth and we hate falsehood because we love our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you not cling to him? See how much he has done for you. 
And it's in him that our security is to be found, both today and then forevermore and someday in glory. Might the Lord help us to do this. Let's pray together. The Lord, our God in heaven, how we do love you and we thank you for the truth as it is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do pray in the world of lies and of deception, in a world marked by a beast who has come out of the earth, O Lord, give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Grant that we would see the futility of every earthly philosophy, of every system of religion or of thought which denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is the God-man for the salvation of sinners. O Lord, our God, help us to resist such, uh, such work and help us to cling all the more closely to this one who has loved us and given himself for us. And these things we now pray in Jesus' name. Amen.